When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, I'm Emily Karen. And I'm Eben Novi Williams. And this is the No Other Country Has Ever Done This sports business podcast, The Sportacast. Emily Scott is still traveling, which is his loss, our listeners gain because we get to talk to you instead. I believe this is your Sportacast debut. Is that right? It is. I'm honored. Well, I'm very excited to have this conversation. As I teased there at the beginning on Wednesday morning, some big breaking news in the world of gender equality in sports and soccer. The U.S. men's national team and U.S. women's national team have agreed to new collective bargaining agreements that will pay them essentially equally puts an end to what at this point has been six years of uh, litigation, of legal fights, of public battling between the women's national team and U.S. soccer over the way in which the women are compensated. Seems like a pretty big deal. Give us the breakdown of of the things here that you found most important and, and, and maybe most groundbreaking about what happened on Wednesday. Yeah, so I think you hit the nail on the head that it is a pretty big deal. Um, I think what the end goal here is to kind of set a precedent and establish kind of the way of the future more than anything. Um, We knew that this was coming. The lawsuit settled a few months back, contingent on the fact that these two unions, the Men's National Team Players Association and the Women's National Team Players Association, signed equal CBAs uh, or, or, you know, where the the economic terms were the same. Um, So we knew this was coming. Obviously, actually getting to that agreement was a a bit of a longer process. And I think the biggest part of this to me, actually, is that the FIFA payments are going to be equal. Because if you actually look at the payouts from FIFA for the men's and women's World Cups, not equal at all. Not even close to equal. They are so far apart. It's it's So far apart. And that was the biggest hurdle in getting a, a deal done here is figuring out how to equalize that. And how to ensure that the revenue is distributed equally uh, amongst the men's and women's national team players, which required the men's national team players um, who are going to earn, I think it was, you know, their upcoming match or just for qualifying, I think they'll get like 10 and a half million, if I'm not mistaken. Whereas the women's entire payout for winning the last World Cup was $4 million. So you have to get the men's national team then to agree that they're going to divide that revenue up equally with the women's team, which does mean taking a cut on their part. Um, And so I think that was probably the biggest sticking point in terms of the negotiations. But they came to an agreement. So all of the money um, that the U.S. wins on both the men's in the men's and women's World Cups will be pooled and divided equally. Obviously, a share of that will go to the federation um, for this 
the upcoming World Cups, and then I think they established this through 2028, so that will include another pair of World Cups. Um, and the Federation will obviously get a part, a part of that, but the players will get the bulk of it, um, which is a big step forward for the women's national team in particular. Yeah, it's funny. I wrote down some of these numbers because I was I was totally fascinated by them. The the, the massive difference in, in the way that men and women are are paid at the at their respective World Cups. I think the collective prize pool for the 2019 Women's World Cup in France was 30 million dollars. The collective yep. prize pool for the Men's World Cup in 2022 is 450 million dollars. And you're right. If you are trying to fight for 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 two national teams from the same country to be paid equally, you have to have an answer for how to balance that discrepancy right there because it's it's such a huge amount of money and a concession here on on behalf of the of the men's team obviously to 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 agree to that there there's a way in which you can look at this where it's a concession by the men's team right the 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 men made i think it was 9 million dollars when they made it to the round of 16 in the 2014 world cup relative to the four which you mentioned which the women made for winning the women's world cup uh, 3 years later but then again the last men's world cup the the us men's team made 0 dollars right they didn't even qualify. So if you were to look at it from that snapshot, $4 million versus $0, in that little four-year snapshot, the men's team would be coming out ahead by pooling its uh, its FIFA, or at least its World Cup payouts uh, with the women. So in some ways, maybe a concession on the men's part, but it, it, there's no question which of these two teams is better from a from a, in a global standpoint. Um, and, and if I had to bet on which team would, would, would be making more money at the World Cup in, in 10 years as the women's Hopefully the women's World Cup the the the, the prize payout rises. Who knows? Um, but but certainly you're right. Uh, uh, the big deal here seems to be the the agreement to pool those two things together. Which when I mentioned at the beginning, no other country has ever done this. That's a quote from Cindy Parlo Cohn, who runs U.S. Soccer. That's what she's talking about. I, she she does not believe, and I'm not aware of any other country in the world in which the the money that they make from men's and women's World Cups is pooled together and then distributed evenly. Yeah, I think that's correct. I think the only uh, a couple people pointed out there's maybe a little bit of a caveat to that where I believe it is Great Britain does pay their men's and women's national team players equally. They do not split FIFA money equally. So there's that difference. Um, but I, I know a couple people did point that out where they're like, eh, we're not quite the first country who's done all of this, but we are the first country who has done this, in t- this kind of to the scope um, in terms of pay equity for the men's and women's national teams. One other big change here uh, under this new CBA, for a long time, the women's national team has been paid salary uh, as a salaried uh, athlete, as opposed to the way the men's team is paid, which is essentially you you get paid as you play. Uh, That is going away moving forward. So moving ahead, both the men's and women's teams will be paid play as you go. They have they have essentially released all of the numbers in terms of how much you get paid for each cap, how much extra and bonus you get if you guys win that game, if you tie that game, etc. So so when we talk about equal pay or almost identical terms, they are identical when it comes to what these athletes are making on the field just for playing in the games and just for winning the games. Uh, so, so that is at least another another big change. A couple other things here that we should mention, Emily. The ticket sharing is going to be identical as well, uh, which I don't believe it was before. There's also a share of commercial deals above a certain value. So, so, so that gets shared as well. And then from a benefit standpoint, kind of similar. It, it reminded me, and you probably know better than me on this, Reminded me kind of of the, the the massive groundbreaking CBA that the WNBA players signed a few years ago. There, there's actually more benefits here for the women, the women's national team, relative to the men's national team. Um, so, so a few things in there like 
childcare, like family leave that the women are getting more of than the men. I think there's kind of obvious reasons why that might be, uh, why that might be the case, but it certainly also seems like beyond just the pay from a benefit standpoint, there are great strides here made for, by the women's team as well. For sure. And I think you have to think of, you know, even you look at the history of women's sports and even things like hotel accommodations and flights versus, you know, commercial flights versus charters, all of that stuff will now be equitable too, which women's sports has not historically been given the best of the best when it comes to that uh, across the board. You know, you, you just mentioned the WNBA is the most recent CBA. They tried to address some of that. Um, and obviously there's still progress to be made, but I think you're now seeing that these will be level playing fields in terms of the benefits, you know, pun intended there uh, across the board in soccer, at least. And it's worth mentioning here. It's obvious for people who follow soccer, but the men on the men's U.S. men's national team are all playing at major clubs. They have huge salaries for their clubs. Christian Pulisic is playing at Chelsea, one of the richest clubs in the world. It's not true. And the, the women are also playing for some of the biggest clubs in the world. They're getting paid way, way less. So, so if you're a woman on the women's national team, this money and, and these benefits are your benefits. This is the, this is the, the thing that puts bread on your table. Uh, it is not that way for the men. So certainly the stakes are higher for the women on the women's national team relative to the men on the men's national team, just because the other jobs are so much more lucrative for the men than the women. Just to put that in a little bit of context, I think it, the new the new NWCL CBA, this is their first ever CBA, set the minimum salary on the women's side for $35,000 a year. <laughs> now, I'm going to go ahead and guess that most of the women who are playing on the national team are not minimum salary players, but you're not looking at, you know, big six-figure, seven-figure salaries here. You're looking at, you know, I think Trinity Rodman is the highest paid player, and she was, you know, $1.1 million guaranteed over four years. So you're looking at a very, very different scale when you're talking about their, you know, their regular club salaries. Yeah, Christian Pulisic probably makes the average of the NWSL uh, salary for like each half he plays in, in, <laughs> yes. in club competition in uh, in England, as an example. Uh, th- th- this whole the, the the fight over equal pay has obviously been around for a long time, but but dates back this kind of version of it dates back to 2016 when 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 five members of the U.S. Women's National Team, uh, Hope Solo, Carly Lloyd, Becky Sauerbrunn, Alex Morgan, and Megan Rapino filed that EEOC complaint. Um, there have been a lot of legal decisions and a lot of very public fights in the process, including in 2019 when the women won the World Cup in France and the entire stadium was chanting equal pay as they, uh, as they took the field to get their, their trophy. It. Uh, it is amazing to think about how long and, and all the different folds and fighting that happened in this suit just to get to kind of where we are today, which I would argue, Emily, and, and I want to get your thoughts on this. I, I, there's winners all over the board here. I, this is obviously great. If you're a, a, a player current or future on the women's national team, uh, I think this is a huge win for us soccer. Also, this is a very toxic, uh, very public problem in which uh, it was very clear that the public perception was on the side of the women. And we can maybe get into to how right or wrong that was, but I think having, if you're U.S. soccer, if you're Cindy Parlo-Cohn, who just recently won re-election to keep leading U.S. soccer, just having this yoke off, off your neck is, is, is worth whatever the potential financial concessions that, that you may be made and, and, and same for the men's team. It just seems like everybody wins here. U.S. soccer wins, Cindy Parlo-Cohn wins, and certainly the women's national team wins. Yeah, I think the U.S. soccer win is a huge aspect of this, too, because U.S. soccer has really had sort of a perception problem, like you touched on for the last several years. Obviously, under previous leadership and legal uh, counsel, there were arguments made that many saw as extremely sexist, you know, in terms of why the women were being paid less. 
people did not take well to that. That was a huge stain on U.S. soccer's public reputation. And I think this is a step toward repairing that. I don't think this is going to do it fully for everyone. I think people kind of look at this as a an institutional problem, um, but this is definitely a step toward rectifying that image. One thing we talk about on this podcast a lot with regards to the NFL is 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 a lot of the commercial success that the league has had in the past year. You can trace it back to the long-term CBA that was signed, that because there is long-term labor peace at the NFL, all of these companies, broadcasters, sponsors, all know that they can get in bed with the NFL right now and be very confident that there's not going to be games canceled, et cetera, moving forward. We saw this with Major, Major League Baseball as well. As soon as the CBA and lockout ended over uh, the offseason, there were a whole bunch of commercial partnerships that Major League Baseball announced and signed from companies who were just waiting to make sure that that they knew that, that the season was going to go ahead, that multiple seasons moving forward were also going to go ahead. I imagine that's true, Emily, also now of U.S. soccer, both the men's and women's teams, that, that there are probably corporate partners out there or future corporate partners out there and maybe even broadcast partners who really like the idea now that through 2028, this is not a problem. There is not going to be ongoing debate about the way men and women are treated. There's gender equality. That's obviously something that a lot of companies care about. But I would expect that this is going to also produce a lot more money for U.S. soccer now that this is in the rearview mirror. Yeah, I think anytime you can remove any potential kind of publicity complications from a partnership, that's an upside. Um, I think the other thing that we probably shouldn't overlook is that you, you know, there were sponsors who were apprehensive about partnering with U.S. soccer because of potential leadership changes leading up to this most recent election, right? Because they knew that settling this lawsuit and doing so and getting the women, kind of the favor of the women's teams, players association and those players involved was a priority of Cindy Parlo-Cone, right? So there were people who were pretty publicly saying or, you know, that that, that was a priority that she stayed in in her position as president to rectify the situation and move them past that. So I think, A, you've got kind of the security locked in through 2028, and B, you have a leader now locked in who those sponsors know is kind of advocating for the things that will help continue to rectify that image. And I think both of those together make a huge difference in, in terms of commercial interest moving forward. And the next few years are extremely critical for soccer in America writ large, but certainly for U.S. soccer in 2026, America, Canada, and, and Mexico are, are jointly hosting the Men's World Cup. Most of those games, the vast majority of them are going to be played here in the U.S. That's a huge commercial opportunity for U.S. soccer and for the men's team. And looking a little bit further ahead, the L.A. Olympics in 2028 is going to be a nice showcase for both the men's and women's uh, soccer teams structured a little bit differently in the Olympics. And I would say a pretty good shot that the U.S. hosts the Women's World Cup maybe in, in, in 2031 as well. So, again, having having this in the rearview mirror and having some kind of consistent standard and and long term labor peace really effective for, for all of those reasons, but especially right now when the U.S. from a hosting standpoint also is going to be in the spotlight for some of the biggest events in the global soccer calendar. Yeah, and I think we also can't overlook right, what you've seen in leagues like whether it's uh, professional women's hockey, whether it's the WNBA, NWSL, is a lot of companies who have very vocally said that they want to be part of moving women's sports forward and moving them toward equity. The U.S. Uh, US soccer is kind of now the poster child of that movement, if you will. 
right? So that's a huge selling point for them in this kind of era of momentum where they've got a number of different calendar events coming off that they can tie these different activations and campaigns into. So you mentioned WNBA there. So that's a good uh, point to jump and transition real quickly <laughs> to a story that that I don't think Scott and I have mentioned on the podcast once, which is uh, was originally by design and maybe as it's gone on, more our fault. But Brittany Griner, uh, 31-year-old basketball phenom star, longtime star of both the WNBA and U.S. women's basketball, uh, as many of our listeners probably are, are aware of, she is in pretrial detention in Russia. Uh, the Russian government says that she was caught trying to bring cannabis oil through customs when she was flying out of Russia. The U.S. State Department says that she was wrongfully detained. It's a very messy situation. Originally, a lot of the kind of the preference of, of, of the W and of the U.S. government was that they didn't want it really publicized that much, that they were going to work behind the scenes to to try to bring Brittany back, um, kind of like what happened with the UCLA basketball players, college basketball players, including one of the Ball brothers uh, who were detained in China a number of years ago. They came back. It was negotiated. It all happened fairly quietly. Scott and I decided we didn't want to bring too much attention to it. However, things have changed a little bit more, Emily, and I, I want you to fill us in on, on, on the latest details. And also, I'm curious just how you think about how to publicize this story, right? When, when, when there are people out there that, that kind of want it on the down low a little bit, and yet there are others who are, are rightfully fairly outraged with what's happening to, uh, to a very famous basketball player in American overseas. Yeah, I think the tone has shifted dramatically in the last two weeks in particular. I think kind of the hush-hush nature of this at the beginning was the more attention we bring to this, kind of the more it will maybe add fuel to Russia's fire for the reason that they want to keep her. It's kind of a leverage point that lets them not make a big deal out of this. Then the U.S. went ahead and classified her as wrongfully detained, which sort of flipped that all on its head, where then it was, okay, let's actually start talking about this a lot. And let's uh, bring attention to the fact that there is an American essentially, you know, being held under false pretenses. Um, and we need to kind of get people to start talking about that. Um, and then, you know, that was, I guess, about two weeks ago now that she was classified as wrongfully detained, that the State Department got involved, the WNBA is working with her. Um, and then she had her, you know, pretrial detention, and they asked for, I believe it was house arrest, so she would be released, at least out of the detention facility. That was the most recent development, which was denied. And so now she will remain in custody until her trial date is set. Now, her lawyer came out and said that that is a positive in the sense that that means they're going to set a trial date soon. But the reality is Russia has some of the strictest uh, drug laws anywhere in the world. She is also black and she's a gay woman. None of these things are working in her favor when you look at Russia's track record and their history in this stuff. Um, and so I think even if there is a trial, right, the questions of is it going to be fair? Is this partially politically motivated because what, of what's going on in Russia and Ukraine and the U.S.'s support? Like, this is so much bigger than just Brittany Griner. And unfortunately, she just appears to be kind of a political pawn that Russia may be using right now. And that is not a position I don't think anyone would want to be in when you look at Russia's track record. Yeah, certainly in the past few decades, there's never been a worse time to be an American in in jail in Russia, probably than 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 it is right now. Is, should we be talking more about this? I, I know that you mentioned Kathy Engelbert and the WNBA have been making more noise. I know that they put her initials on, I believe, on the jerseys this season. Yeah, on the side of the courts too. A Adam Silver, the commissioner of the NBA, has been out talking about it. So it's it sounds like now the the, the 
it's okay and, and maybe encouraged now to be speaking more openly about her detention and how outrageous uh, a lot of people here think it is. Yeah, it definitely is. Um, I think some of the bigger questions that this has brought up too, be not in politics. Politics are probably the biggest questions uh, at play <laughs> here. But when you think about basketball in particular, is kind of Brittany Griner is not the only WNBA player who plays in Russia and who plays in countries with questionable human rights, you know, uh, records and and questionable laws and potentially risky environments for them to be in. Um, there are a number of countries in, you know, Eastern Europe and, and Europe more broadly that WNBA players go in play every off season. Um, and it's been a, a point of, you know, a priority for the WNBA for many years to kind of keep them stateside during the off season, a, you know, kind of just to keep them fresh, better playing during the WNBA regular season, but also be, it, it's not that great of a look when your players are going over to Russia every off season, because they're going to make millions of dollars there that they can't make stateside. Um, And I think the safety issue is now bringing that conversation back to the forefront of why do, why did Brittany Griner have to go overseas? Why has she been going to Russia every single year for the last how many years to play in the off season? You know, it's it's an issue of compensation. That's the only reason she's there. Yeah. It's a tidy way of actually tying the the conversation we just had about women's soccer here in America to this conversation about Brittany Griner. Cause it's a great point that again, the, the, there's not much money right now from a salary standpoint, if you're a professional women's athlete in the U S whether that's basketball or whether that's uh, whether that's soccer. And you're right in a world in which the WNBA athletes were compensated better. I would imagine a lot of these players would not be playing overseas in their, in, in their off season, which, NBA players obviously don't do because there's there's no financial reason uh, to have to do it. So yeah, it's interesting. I had not, I honestly had not thought about this that much from a, from, from a gender equity and and a compensation standpoint, but that's, that's an interesting thread. Well, you look at even, I think it was Diana Taurasi who said during the last, uh, this most recent WNBA playoffs, um, she had a child, uh, her child was born during the playoffs or or Mm. her uh, partner went into labor and she had to fly home immediately she had to charter a plane to do that because the WNBA for all their teams fly commercial, which obviously has also been another conversation that's been happening um, lately, but they fly commercial. She couldn't get back in time. So she chartered a plane. And I remember someone asked her about it in a press conference the next day. And she said, and I quote like, Oh yeah, I have my Russian buddies to thank for that because of the money that she made over there. Now I'm not sure that she probably loves that quote right now. Um, (laughs) Aged a little differently. Yeah. But you know, it's just like the, the, disparity in what they can earn overseas and what players can earn in the WNBA has never been more apparent. It's interesting. Okay. Let's, let's move on a little bit more. Um, NHL playoffs are going on right now. Games televised via Turner on TBS and TNT games televised on ESPN and keeping with the theme. I, I, you mentioned this to me right before we started, there's been a push to get more female fans uh, watching hockey games, playoff hockey games. And it seems like that's going pretty well. What can you tell us about that? So I just have to say, first of all, I love this. I'm a huge hockey fan. Uh, I was a figure skater my entire life. So if anyone who's been in a rank knows that we are called rank rats and you kind of just <laughs> <laughs> cling on to the sport. Um, so I actually love this. And I Adweek did a really good story about this. I believe it was a week ago, maybe two weeks ago, um, kind of looking at how both Turner and ESPN have been intentional about targeting new demographics for the hockey audience. Um, ESPN saw some pretty big jumps. I think it was, you know, a 73% increase in female fans over NBC. And then Turner actually just released their numbers um, 
this week, uh, the first round of the Stanley Cup playoffs, female viewership was up 83% over 2021. Obviously, 2021 was still not a, a you know fully normal season for the NHL. And so I'm one, you know, part of that is I think all of their numbers were a little wonky there, but that's a massive increase. So, so this may be a dumb question. Uh, how do you, if you're, let's say you're Turner and you have an NHL playoffs, how are you, is it, is it a marketing change? How are you attracting more female fans? Is it putting ads on other shows or in other places of the internet where primarily female audiences? Is it changing the makeup or who the actors are in some of your ads? What does it actually look like to specifically target a female sports fan demographic? Yeah. So I think a lot of it is where you're targeting them. Um, you know, I think you're going to reach female fans on social media probably much more quickly than you're going to reach them, you know, watching an NFL game on a Sunday afternoon. Um, that is not to say that there are not female NFL fans. Actually, NFL's demographic is like 50-50. Most of the time they're split. Mm. Um, but it has been a very intentional effort in terms of like, A, making the games accessible. I think, you know, the new deal with ESPN made that pretty easy to do. Um, ESPN is probably a more accessible network than I guess, well, definitely more accessible than NBCSN now because NBCSN does not exist. But that is something more familiar to fans. Probably people have easier access to that. They stumble across it more readily. Um, but then it also has been a very big social push and just getting ads in front of female fans where they are instead of just targeting the existing viewers. Um, and it's interesting to see it pay off though, right? Because you hear people in women's sports talk a lot about the importance of social media. And now you're seeing that translate into like a linear result. I know you've written about this as well in the past, but there's a, obviously a very similar push going on in the sports betting companies right yeah. now that are trying, uh, they, the, the initial signups in almost every state have been extremely heavily slanted towards male sports fans. And as you're saying that the demographics fans of a lot of leagues is roughly 50, 50. It's just a matter of reaching and, and engaging those female fans. So I know that a lot of the sports books are thinking about these same, same kind of things. Yeah, it's interesting. I think I've gotten like a press release a day for the last like couple of weeks. That's like X, Y, and Z platform, uh, all sports betting or, or sports book operators, you know, is now onboarding more women than they are, you know, male customers every day. Um, so it'll be interesting. I think once we see those patterns kind of settle in and you see how many people are actually wagering and what the handle looks like, I, I would be fascinating to see what the handle looks like split between gender, but also what types of events are being bet on split between genders. Okay, let's end uh, on a quick NCAA conversation. We're at that point now where uh, 990s tax filings from last year are starting to come out. One of the more interesting ones that comes out every year is the NCAAs. Uh, we get an insight into Mark Emmert, the, the president of the NCAA. We get an insight into what he's paid. We get insight into what uh, the NCAA is paying on legal costs, which have mounted <laughs> uh, fairly substantially in the past few years. What was your takeaway from, from, from what we learned about the NCAA and its finances this week? Well, so the 990 that we got a hold of this week was for the 2020-2021 fiscal year. And I think what was most interesting is, right, that is the peak time that was all pre-Alston. And that was also kind of pre-NIL when the NCAA was really heavily lobbying for some kind of federal intervention in terms of uh, NIL legislation, which obviously we did not get. Um, we still have not gotten. And I honestly, if, between us, I don't know that we will get. Um, but I, I mean... The money that they spent there is just astounding. 
for what seems like a foregone conclusion, like everyone else seemed to be on the same page that this was not going to go in the NCAA's favor, except for the NCAA. I, I believe the numbers here, they spent over $304 million on outside legal expenses in the past seven years. Uh, a lot of that is for two very high profile cases, one being Ed O'Bannon's lawsuit, which you can easily argue led to the creation of of the NIL market as we know it. The second being the Alston case, which which you mentioned, which went up to the Supreme Court where the NCAA lost. Uh, so yes, a, a lot of expenses paid for two, I would argue both of them essentially losing efforts in very public court cases for the NCAA. Yeah, and I think the other thing that we saw there, and uh, maybe you and I disagree on this a little bit, was uh, Mark Emmert's salary came out. Mark Emmert took, he technically had a a contractual raise built in, which I understand was predetermined, uh, built in, I think it was like a 5% pay bump. He's already making several million dollars a year. Uh, And then he took some kind of a pay cut, quote unquote, (laughs) <laughs> uh, for that everyone else, I guess, not everyone else, let me correct that, that a number of um, other executives kind of in the top ranks of NCAA, but not all, took. Uh, and then he somehow still ended up making more money than he made the year before. So there's that. He went from like $2.9 million to like, I think, just under $3 million. Yeah, it was not as bad as the quote unquote pay cuts that a lot of college football coaches took in which uh, <laughs> yeah. they just got the money that they took in the pay cut later on in, in a lump sum afterwards, yeah. which uh, is not a pay cut at all. It's just a deferred payment of your uh, of your salary until uh, the COVID pandemic is is, is less bad. Uh, but it but was yes. all counted as pay cuts. That was the best part of that. And, and this is the, as we've discussed on the show, we're reaching the tail end of Mark Emmert's time at the NCAA. He is either leaving in the next few months or at the very latest uh, leaving next summer uh, while they search for his replacement. Fascinated, Emily, to see who they interview for that job. I don't know if you have thoughts on on who is the right place that the NCAA should be looking, but this is an organization that is under a tremendous amount of pressure from a number of different ways, looking for a lifeline from the federal government while simultaneously facing what I would say is an, an existential crisis about what its role is going to be as the judge, jury, and executioner of, of, of college sports moving forward. Uh, just such a very difficult time and I think you and I would maybe agree, correct me if I'm wrong, that, that, that they should be looking outside the box for something here. And, and this is not, a, not an enterprise college sports that is comfortable looking outside the box for anything. Yeah, I, I don't know if you could pay me enough money to take the role of NCAA, uh, to take Mark Emmert's role in the okay. future. I, so, so hold on right there. Like is, You're saying that Mark Emmert is overpaid, but they couldn't pay you enough money to do his job. In the future. I think I think whoever takes this job is entering a time that's going to be 10 times more tumultuous than what Mark Emmert dealt with during his tenure, dealt with okay. during his tenure. I think that's fair. I think that's a fair statement. I think this is probably the hardest time to take over his job because of how you're basically oh, in a period where there's a potential entire overhaul of your organization and the way it's operated, right? So there's no rule book you can follow that says okay, Mark Emmer did it this way and here's how it was structured and let me just take from that and learn from that. Like you're basically walking into what could be an entirely new organization. So I feel like there are so many unknowns that I don't know that I I would not be up for the task. 
Well, we'll leave it here. If anyone on the NCA search committee is listening to this podcast, you can pay me enough money to do Mark <laughs> Emmert's job. So if you're interested- I just want to know what your, uh, what's your price tag. <laughs> reach out to me. Uh, it's probably less than what Mark Emmert was. definitely less than what Mark <laughs> Emmert was paid. Um, this has been fun, Emily. Please come back and join us soon. She is Emily Karen on Twitter at underscore, another underscore, I love it, underscore E-M Karen. I am Evan Novi Williams on Twitter at Novi underscore Williams. Show is produced by Matt Whitehurst. Shout out to Matt. Cora Veltman, our digital media editor, wants you to know that you can download the Sportacast wherever you get your podcasts. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.